0: James chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to jump in at verse 7 here in just a second. But as I was reflecting on this passage of Scripture this week, I was reminded how so often in life the most significant lessons, you know, the things that we need to learn the most, are often lessons that have to be repeated over and over and over. So, you know, as a parent, there are all of these things that Sydney and I want to teach our boys, and one of the things that we've learned over the years is if it really matters to us, we can't just say it to them one time. Like, we have to say it hundreds and hundreds of times, like the, the most important lessons in life, they take some time to sink in, they, they bear repeating. And this isn't just true in parenting, this is, this is true in my own life personally. You know, Sydney and I, we've been married 15 years, we've been together almost 20 years, and there's all these things that Sydney's been trying to teach me, train me, and fix me, and correct me, and, and as she would attest, None of those lessons does she just shared them once. You know, she has to teach me over and over and over. Because the reality is the things in life that are most important, they that they require repeating, it's repetition. If we're going to learn it. So we shouldn't be surprised in life when important things, these themes kind of come back when they circle up. And we certainly shouldn't be surprised in the scriptures when we see these themes kind of carry from book to book or chapter to chapter. When we get to a letter like the one that's been written by James, his half brother of Jesus. And we've been saying this, you know, every week together over the last couple of months. You know, this is a letter that's written by a good friend to a church that he loves, that's going through a really hard time. And so he's writing this letter about what does it look like to live out the ways of Jesus in the midst of their scattering. They've been scattered by persecution and hardship. And he's gonna say, here's what it looks like to live faithfully on mission together when we can't come to the temple, when we can't be together the way we used to. Here's what it looks like. And as he goes through this really short letter, you'll notice there's these things that he begins to repeat, and he's repeating these things, not because he's forgotten, not because his memory's slipping, he's repeating these things, because just like every good parent knows, the most important lessons in life bear repeating. And if if they're gonna sink in, um, we can't just hear them with our ears, we can't just read them with our eyes, we have to begin to practice them in our lives. And so, if you've noticed over the last couple of weeks, he's really begun to kind of press in on the way that we treat one another. He's gonna say, if you wanna live out the gospel, even in the midst of your scattering, the way you treat other people really, really matters. And so last week he started to talk about what does it look like to to live as a peacemaker in in a culture that is overrun with conflict? Like how do we live as peacemakers when we're in a in a world that is just filled with conflict, conflict between nations, conflict between political parties, conflict between races, conflict between spouses, even conflict in the context of the church, James is going to say, what does it look like to live as a peacemaker in a world filled with conflict? Because James, he's picking up on the language from his big brother Jesus. James knows that our uh, our responsibility as followers of Jesus is not just to preach peace or to celebrate peace or to tweet about peace or to affirm peace it's to make peace. And there's a big difference between someone who celebrates peace and talks about peace and tweets about peace and someone who actually enters into the conflict, enters into the fray, and begins to make peace. You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In other words, making peace in a world filled with conflict is just fundamental to our identity as followers of Jesus here in the midst of a conflicted world. So if you are with us last week, James, he really kind of keyed in on this. He started in verse 1, maybe you remember, he started by asking a question. He says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? And then we spent the next 30 minutes together last week really wrestling with how you live as a peacemaker. And so he said, if you want to live as a peacemaker amidst a world of conflict, you have to search your heart. It starts by you understanding the battles within you. He said, "You have to fix your eyes on the grace of Jesus that overwhelms the opposition you're feeling and the conflict that you're feeling." He said, "And then you have to to bend your knee. You have to humble yourself before God Almighty if you want to live as a peacemaker in a conflicted world." And if you're anything like me, you know, I look at what we talked about last week, and there's a part of me that goes, "Okay, James, I got it. I'm good. Let's like move on to the next lesson." My question for us this morning is, "How'd you do at actually making peace this week? Did you live as a peacemaker?" Like in the midst of this contentious election cycle, I don't know if you've noticed, the world's kind of in a place of conflict. How did you make peace last week? Did you do anything with what we talked about? And I love it. James is like a good parent that's not scared to just reiterate the same thing. He's going to say, hey, let's, let's keep talking about this for a minute. And if you're anything like me, honestly, my temptation was like, hey, let's just skip to the next part of the passage. We talked about peace last week. Why do we need to talk about it again this week? But I just sense that there's something for us in here. And so this is kind of part two to last week, how to be a peacemaker in the midst of conflict. Let's pick up in James chapter four, verse seven together. James says, submit yourselves then to God. Or some of your Bibles say, so then submit yourselves to God. And and that word then is like really important because James is gonna say, hey, this thing that we're about to talk about is connected to the thing that we just talked about. I think for years I'd read this passage of scripture that we're about to dive into this morning, and I would divorce it from the context that came right before it. This whole conversation is unfolding where James is talking to people just like you and I that we're living in a world filled with conflict. He's saying, Here's how you live as a peacemaker. And so in verse 7, he says, Hey, let's keep talking about that. So then, so then, in light of what it means to be a peacemaker, so then submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love it. James, he is not scared to just say the hard things. He doesn't need to send you flowers before he steps on your toes. He's like, here's the reality. He said, even as followers of Jesus, we we have all sorts of conflict going on within us. Verse nine, he says, grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, see, he's, he's talking not to the culture at large. He's talking to the church right here. James knows that peacemaking, like the responsibility of it, starts in the church. It's not in the culture. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and, the judge, and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you are sitting in judgment over it. One last verse. He said, there's only one lawgiver and one judge, one who is able to save and one who is able to destroy. Listen to this. But you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God, spoken through James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to this church in the midst of hardship. And remember, he's talking to us like, what does it look like practically in our lives to live as peacemakers in a world of conflict? And so he's gonna begin building off of what he talked about last week. And so we can't throw all of that out the window. That was the foundation he's building. And this week he's gonna say, hey, if we wanna live as peacemakers in a contentious, divided world, it's gonna require you to have a good offense, a good defense, and you're gonna to have to have someone in your life that you trust enough to call the shots. He's gonna say you need an offense, you need a defense, you need someone that you trust if they're gonna call the shots. It's the only way you can actually live in the world as a peacemaker when the world doesn't wanna make peace with you. And so you know, this fall, all three of my boys have been playing fall baseball, which means we've spent the majority of the last nine weeks on our weekend at the ballpark watching them play. It's been so much fun. And as they're growing older, as they're learning the game a bit more, we keep reminding them, hey, if you want to win, if you want to be on a good team, you need three things. You need an offense. Like in other words, you've got to be able to hit the ball, you've got to be able to score, you've got to be able to drive in some runs if you're going to win the game. You need an offense. But you don't just need an offense, you need a defense. You have to to be able to catch the ball and throw people out at first. You have to stop people from scoring. It's key, like in any game, like you've got to score offense, you've got to stop others from scoring, that's defense. But as my oldest son, Micah, is learning, this is his first year in kid's pitch, you know, it's no longer a coach throwing to him, you also need a really fair person that you trust to call the shots. You need a good umpire, you need a good referee, you need a good judge, you need somebody who in theory is impartial that's calling the shots. And so, you know, he's learned the reality of this over the last couple of months. Sometimes you get a good umpire, sometimes you don't. Sometimes they call the shots well and sometimes they don't. And James is gonna say the reason we can live as peacemakers in a world that is filled with conflict is because you as a follower of Jesus, you're not just doing the stuff from last week, searching your heart and fixing your eyes and humbling yourself before the Lord. He says, but you begin to build a good offensive strategy, a good defensive strategy, and you learn how to trust someone who's bigger than you with the outcomes of this conflicted world we find ourselves in. So let's start with this idea of a good offense. James is gonna say, if you want to live as a peacemaker, It starts in this place of offensive living, offensive living, where you're going, how do I take initiative? I don't just sit back on my heels. I'm not passive about peacemaking. I don't just sit back and hide and wait for the storm to blow over. As followers of Jesus, we engage conflict with all of the resources of heaven. He's gonna say, here's how you do it. I want you to notice this. Look back at verse seven and eight. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves to God. And then in verse eight, he's gonna say, Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Like, James understands that the best defense, in some ways, is a good offense. You think in basketball, you know, you can play defense on the back half of the court and wait for the team to come to you, or you can do the full-court press where you show up and you take the game to them. And there's this reality where James is going to say, hey, if you want to live as a peacemaker in the world, it starts with you being proactive— not just about avoiding conflict, it starts with you being proactive about building a friendship with the Prince of Peace. This is the way you become a peacemaker. You build a friendship with the Prince of Peace. Have you ever noticed in life we tend to become a lot like the people we hang out with, whether you want to or not. We become a lot like our friends. And so if your friends dress a certain way, you know, history proves that over time you'll kind of start to dress like them, talk like them, think like them, act like them. So if your friends are contentious, if they're argumentative, if they're gossipers, if they indulge in sin, if they are relaxed with their morality, if they are casual about their Christianity, typically speaking, that's what becomes of you. We become like our friends remember when I was a kid, our family, for a couple of years we lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It was in the upstate of South Carolina. We had this wonderful little neighborhood that we lived in, there were a bunch of kids that were right around my age, and we'd play baseball together and football together, and we'd run through the woods together, and we'd go fishing together, so many fun things that we'd do. But one of the, the downsides of that little group of friends, we are kind of like a wolf pack together, was the way that we tended to settle arguments was through fighting. It's just kind of what boys would do, you know, sometimes growing up. And so um, these kids, like when there'd be an argument, they'd hey, just fight it out. You know, that's kind of their way. And I'd never thought like that before. I'd never acted that way before. And so one of my, my closest friends in that neighborhood was a kid named Josh. Uh, Josh was my age, and he and I were good buddies together. I remember one day, he and I got in this big argument. We got in this big argument in front of the other kids, and all of a sudden, the kids just circle up around us, and they just start chanting at us, fight, 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 and never in my life had I fought before, but all of a sudden, I find myself in this fist fight with this guy that I loved a lot. We were like really good friends, and. I know some of you are curious. Of course I won. Of course I I won the fight, but um, not that we condone that. You know, that was before I was saved. That was my unchristian self. And I remember running home, and I'm running home, and I'm crying. I'm so upset that I got in this fight with this this kid that I was really close to. I remember telling my dad about it. My dad said, when you hang out with friends that fight over silly things, you'll become the kind of guy that fights over silly things. And it just stuck with me. It's like, man, it's so true. Like, we become like our friends. And James is going to say, hey, there's all these fights. There's all these quarrels among you, nation to nation, political party, race to race, between family members, even in the context of the old church, your own church. And the way that you offensively move through that is you begin to radically, wholeheartedly build a friendship with the Prince of Peace because you become like the ones you befriend. And I love what he says here. He gives us a couple of really key strategies in verse 7 and 8. He uses this word submit, and he uses this phrase to come near. I don't know if you write in your Bibles. Those are two really important phrases. Uh, Let's start with this idea of submission. I know for some of you that's kind of a, a trigger word. You don't like that. You don't know what to do with it. But this idea of submission, I'll give you just a quick definition. It is to voluntarily bring all of your life under the care of someone else. To voluntarily to, to, to bring your life under the care of someone else. And what he's saying here is, as followers of Jesus, if we wanna live as peacemakers, we have to submit to Jesus himself. We have to bring all of our lives, our finances, the way we spend our time and our energy, the way we steward our sexuality, uh, the, the stuff that we watch at night when nobody's around, the way that we speak, the way that we think. He says you have to bring all of your life in order under the lordship of Jesus, under his will, under his words, under his ways. Remember. Several years ago, our family was in New York. I'd gone up to do a wedding for a good friend of mine, and uh, this was before our youngest son, Judah was born. and so Mike and Jack were really young. In fact, they were so young. Jack was still in a stroller, and we'd put Mike on top of that stroller and push them through the streets of New York. And we we're just having a great time. I remember this one day in particular, we were walking through Manhattan, and it just begins to pour rain on us. You know we didn't have a rain jacket. We didn't have an umbrella. And I kid you not, as soon as it begins to rain, all of these street vendors begin rolling out these umbrellas that are for sale, you know, right on the street corner. And I'm like, that's a phenomenal business strategy. You know, like, I'm gonna wait for a rainstorm and then I'm gonna sell umbrellas to tourists that weren't expecting the rain. And so there's this guy, he's sitting there with these umbrellas for sale and he's looking at my poor little family, we're getting soaked, and he says, hey, now would be a great time for you to buy an umbrella for your family. I'm like, I totally agree, but I don't have any cash. And uh, this was before Venmo had been created, before the Cash App was around. And uh, so the guy looked at us for a few minutes, and he just felt so sorry for us. And it was so kind, he comes over and he gives us this umbrella as a gift. And I remember standing on the streets of New York, we put that umbrella up, and all of a sudden, all four of us are trying to get under it, because we know the only way an umbrella works is if your body is actually under it. It's not, it's not just good to possess it, to hold on to it, to even put up an air. You have to get yourself under it. And James is going to say, if you want to become a peacemaker, you don't just need to know about Jesus or affirm Jesus or celebrate Jesus or think about Jesus. You have to make sure all of your life is in order under Jesus. You can't just have, here's my Sunday morning routine, and here's the rest of my life. It doesn't work that way. He says, you have to put all of your life in order under the will, under the words, under the ways of Jesus. You have to voluntarily submit to him. You have to get under the covering of who he is. He says, this is the way you build a friendship with the Prince of Peace. You submit yourself to him. But it's not just about submitting yourself to the ways and the words and wills of Jesus. He says, you have to get so close to Jesus that he can reach out and touch you. It's that phrase that you see in verse eight where he says, come near. In the original language, it literally meant to be so close in proximity that you were at hand's reach, you're at arm's distance from a person that could touch you. I remember when Sydney and I were were about to start dating, and you know, I hadn't yet sealed the deal. She wasn't officially my girlfriend. You know, she was super attracted to me, obviously, and uh, I was attracted to her. And we we're kind of in that phase where we didn't know what our relationship was, and you know we we're in college, and so I memorized her schedule. Maybe that's creepy. Maybe that makes me a stalker. I would say it just made me successful, you know. but <laughs> I kind of memorized where her classes were, and we didn't have classes on the same side of campus or in the same buildings, but I would get out of class, and I would run over to the other side of campus, and I would just be hanging out in the general vicinity where she would walk by Why? because I knew if we, were going to have to have a, if we were going to have a relationship, I had to be close enough in order for us to actually connect. I had to put myself in the path. I had to put myself in a position. And this is what James is saying. He's saying, hey, if you want to be a peacemaker, you have to be friends with the Prince of Peace. It's not just about getting your life under the covering of Jesus. It's about putting yourself in a position that you are so close to God that he could reach out and touch you. So what you see with Zacchaeus, he knew Jesus was coming to his town, and Zacchaeus didn't stay in his house. He got in a position where God could reach out and touch him. It's what you see with the paralyzed man who needed a touch from God to be healed. He wasn't comfortable staying outside of the house. He needed someone to lower him down. You know, all throughout the Scriptures, guys, this phrase, this idea of coming near to God, getting so close he can touch you, it is used almost exclusively to talk about what happens when we as God's people enter into seasons of prayer and fasting, come into places of worship, find ourselves serving the poor, getting together in the context of holy community, opening up the Scriptures. This is the image that's used, that when we put ourselves in a position to be touched by God, that God comes close to us and he touches the heart. You know, I think about this week that we're entering into, this week of prayer and fasting. I go, is it possible for God to touch your heart and change your heart if you're stay at home and you just binge watch on Netflix, whatever show you're into right now? Could God touch your heart in that way? Of course He could. But is that the way that He usually works? Typically it's not. There's no surprise that when you show up and you prioritize the presence of God, that God tends to soften and work and to mold. And sometimes we make it so much more mysterious than it is. And James is going to say, hey, if you want to have what it takes to live as a peacemaker in the midst of a contentious world, you've got to become friends with the Prince of Peace. And the way you become friends with the Prince of Peace is you get all of your life in order under his ways, his words, his will, and you put yourself, you keep putting yourself in positions to be touched by God in places of prayer and worship and community and service and all of the stuff that we do together. He says it starts with a good offense. But it's not just about a good offense he goes on in verse 7 to say you also need a defense because it's not just about what you're doing proactively it's about how you protect yourself from the onslaught of the enemy look at verse 7 again he says submit yourselves into god and what resist the devil and he will flee from you you know i think one of the greatest tricks that the the devil has ever put into place is he's convinced so many of us that he's not real and a lot of us, even followers of Jesus, we live our lives as though there's no real enemy, as though there's no real battle, as though, uh, as though there's nothing really going on. Or maybe some of us, we do live our lives as though, though we're in a war, but we actually live our whole lives in war with the wrong thing. We believe it's that person on the other side of the political aisle that's your enemy. You believe that it's that neighbor that just you know won't be a good neighbor that's your enemy. You believe it's that person at your work, or maybe it's your spouse, or your, your friends. You believe that they're the enemy, and the Scriptures are going to say, yes, you are indeed in a war. You are indeed in a conflict, but this battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against that person that votes differently than you, or looks differently than you, or works differently than you. The battle is against powers, and principalities, and authorities in spiritual realms. That's what Ephesians chapter 6 says. And James here is going to say, hey, if you want to live as a peacemaker, you have to understand that there is someone who is constantly making war with you. And it's the devil. It's the great enemy of God, this fallen angel that hates God. And because he hates God, he hates you, and he wants to to ruin everything about your life so you can't walk in intimacy with God. And James is going to say, if you want to live as a peacemaker, you have to understand this reality. You have to live with eyes wide open to the reality that you have an enemy who longs to deceive you. This is one of the things that the enemy does. Just think about his schemes for a minute. He just paints with the brush brush of deception. He lies about you, who you are. He he gives you lies about your identity. He lies about God. He lies about your friends. He lies about what's going on in the world because he knows that if he can deceive your mind, he can win the battle. He's a deceiver. But he's not just a, a deceiver, he's a distractor. He knows if he can get you to disengage from the most important things, if he can get you to just scroll, if he can, if he can get you to just, just veg out at night and be, not be present with your roommates or your family, he knows if he, he can just get you to put your head in the sand with what's going on in the world, that he can, he can really mess you up. He is a deceiver. He's a deceiver. He is a distractor. He is a divider. He loves to divide. He divides nation against nation. He divides husband against wife. He divides friend against friend. He divides parent against child. He divides Christian against Christian. He works, he masters in the realm of division. He loves pointing out somebody else's flaws while simultaneously reminding you of your greatness. And when he can remind you of your greatness and remind you of somebody else's flaws, he begins to divide. He deceives, he distracts, he divides, he destroys. He loves to get you to just numb out on things that will ultimately destroy you just watch this thing online, who does it hurt? Hey, just numb yourself from the reality of what's going on at work with uh, another drink. Hey, just, just veg out and, and, and escape from your family. Uh, comfort yourself to death, do whatever, he loves to lead you into this. This is what Jesus says, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest, but the enemy has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. It's who he is. He deceives us, he distracts us, he divides us, He tries to destroy us. And anywhere you see deception and division and distraction and destruction, you are seeing the aroma of hell. You're seeing seeing the fingerprints of hell. Guys, if we just step back, it doesn't take a sociologist or philosopher to just see the fingerprints of hell all over the world right now. We see the schemes of the devil, the division, the distraction, the destruction and the deception. And here's one of the great grievances, I believe, when we look at the church is so many followers of Jesus spend their whole life making pe- their whole lives making peace with the devil's schemes, while then in turn going to war with their brothers and sisters. We make peace with His deception. We just believe the lies. We make peace with His divisive ways. We make peace with his distractions and his destruction. We make peace with the devil, we go to war with each other, and then we step back and go, man, why does my life feel like hell? And James is gonna say, you have a real enemy and you have to resist him. So the reality is so many followers of Jesus don't even put up a fight. We don't even resist. I go, how do you resist? You think about that moment where Jesus is in the wilderness right after he's baptized, 40 days of prayer and fasting. He was was doing what we're entering into this week. I just want you to think back on that story. Did the devil leave him alone when he was trying to consecrate himself before God? Of course not. The enemy came. Jesus was in this offensive position. He was getting his life under the Lord. He He was drawing near so God could touch him, and the devil showed up in that moment to try to distract him, to try to destroy him, to try to divide him against his father, to try to deceive him. And what did Jesus do? Jesus used the word of God. And he used the word of God to resist the attacks of the enemy. And I love what James says. He says, when you resist the devil, he will flee. It doesn't mean he'll flee forever, but just like he did with Jesus, he'll flee and he'll look for another opportunity to come. But we should know if we want to live as peacemakers in the world, we need a good offense. We draw near to God. We need a good defense, we resist the work of the devil, and then we need someone who is good enough and big enough to trust, to call the shots when the world does not want to make peace with us. Look at at verses nine through 12. There's so much in this that we're not gonna just dive into right now, but I want you to hear this. It says, grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law of God and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you are sitting above it in judgment. There's only one lawgiver and only one judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but, who, but you, who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? It's, it's like when my kids are in the backyard playing pickup football with the kids from the neighborhood. When they try to be the quarterback and the referee, it never works out well. Why? Because they're not impartial. Their perspective's not good enough to call the shots. James says the reason we can live as radical peacemakers, the reason we can do this It's not just because we have an offensive strategy of getting near to God. It's not just because we have a defensive strategy of protecting ourselves from the enemy. He says, ultimately, the reason we can do this is because we believe that at the end of the day, God is fair, he is good, he will call the shots, and he will make all things new. Just spoiler alert, I I want you to hear this, like take this into your heart. Just because you try to make peace in a conflicted world does not mean the world will make peace with you. You can do everything that James has called us to do and you not see the fruit of peace in your life. And that is really frustrating. And so the reality is sometimes most of us tend to live our lives with a sense of conditional peacemaking. We go, I'll make peace until that person comes back at me. I'll make peace as long as, I'll make peace. And Jesus says, no, blessed are the peacemakers, why? Because they're called children of God. Jesus goes so far with this version of peace. He doesn't say, hey, keep peace unless they slap you on the cheek and then you go to war. He says, no, you keep peace when they slap you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek. He doesn't say, hey, keep peace unless they speak negative against you. He says, no, when they speak negative against you, you turn that into a place of praise because God's working in the persecution. He doesn't say, hey, speak peace or be, be a peacemaker when, when the world comes against you and your brother tries to sue you. He says, no, when they take one coat, you give them all you have. When they tell you to walk one mile, you walk two. Jesus says, you take peace further than the human mind is able to get their mind around. Because in in the demonstration of peacemaking, what you're giving people is an example of the gospel of Jesus. And the reality is so many followers of Jesus, guys, we've bought into the schemes of the devil. We're losing on the defensive front. We haven't drawn near to God. And so when the world begins to fight and ache and moan and yell, we do the same thing, but we attach Christian things to it. And I'm just telling you guys, it's what I said last week, we are ruining our witness. We are ruining our witness to the nation and to the nations. And I go, what would happen if our church, if you and your family just said, you know what, enough is enough. We are going to live as peacemakers in the midst of a conflicted world. And the reason we can do it, I love this, James says in verse 12, he says, why can you do this? He says, because there's a judge. Who at the end, he's gonna make all things right. I think the reason we we tend to take things into our own hands is because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't believe that God will do right by us in the end. And if, if we don't fix the situation, then who's gonna fix it? And Jesus says, you can trust me all the way to the end, I'm gonna fix it. And this is what I love about James, is is James didn't just preach this, guys. He lived it. James lived this. You know, he preached this message of peace in a really conflicted time for the church where people were being murdered for their faith. Their jobs were being taken. Their homes were being burned down. James kept preaching peace. In fact, he preached it so much that the the other religious leaders of the day couldn't even stomach it. I don't know if you know the way that James' life would end, but this group of people would— be so offended by his message of peace that they took James up to the, to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, 75 feet tall. They threw him off the Temple Mount. He actually survived the fall, which is crazy. He landed on concrete. And as, his, as the mob came down from the temple to actually finish the job, he is praying peace. He is preaching peace until they beat him to death and he died on this message. And I go, man, why could he do that? Well, one, he had seen his big brother do this before him. He had seen Jesus in the garden. When all of the people had come against him, Jesus didn't fight back, but he came in peace. He saw Jesus before Pilate. He saw Jesus on the cross, welcoming the criminals into the kingdom of God. He saw Jesus praying for the salvation of the ones that were murdering him. He had witnessed his big brother do this. He had searched his own heart. He had set his eyes upon that kind of grace, and James had bent his knee to the message of peace, just like God had asked him to do. And then James got serious about it. He came under the lordship of Jesus. He drew near to God over and over and over. They called him camel knees because James spent so much time in prayer that his knees, his physical knees, were literally disfigured by the stone floors that he prayed on. He was so intent on living out this offensive way of Christianity that it disfigured his body. His defensive against the schemes of the enemy, and when the day came that the opposition would not receive his message of peace, he lived into it anyways, because he knew that he would stand before a risen king who one day would make all things new. Guys, it's not accidental that we're spending the week before this contentious election praying and fasting. This isn't random. It's not like, oh yeah, there's an election. <laughs> the whole world's fighting, let's pray and fast. It's like, this is on purpose. You could spend the next 10 days Binging the news and reading every opinion from people that disagree with what you agree with. You could spend the next 10 days on Facebook trying to straighten out your crazy uncle. You could spend the next 10 days with your head in the sand. You could spend the next 10 days fighting and fussing and arguing, but doing it in the name of Jesus. How, how crazy is that? No. Or you could spend the next 10 days and go, hey, let's get our lives in order under Jesus. Let's draw so close to him that he could touch us however he wants to touch us. Let's be aware of the reality that as you pray and fast this week, the devil's going to try to show up, that you're going to have to resist him. Just like he came at Jesus. Man, if he came at Jesus, of course he's going to come at you. (laughs) Of course he's going to come at me. And at the end of the day, as we draw near to God, as we resist the attacks of the enemy, we say, God, whatever happens in the nation— Whatever happens in the nations, we're trusting you. And that's why we don't have to be in turmoil. That's why we don't have to fight the way that everybody else fights. This is the reason we don't hide from the hard conversation. Some of you, the last two weeks, you've heard this message of peacemaking, and you've just confused it with passivity. That's not at all what I'm saying. Being a peacemaker does not just mean you're passive to hard conversations but it means you enter into those conversations with all of the resources, all of the grace, all of the kindness, all of the love of heaven itself. And so we come in, we enter into that place. And so we're gonna do what we, we did last week. i are gonna pray over us. And the band is gonna lead us into a couple of songs of worship where we just fix our eyes on the, the kindness of God together, just like James, we're just gonna fix our eyes on Jesus together. And then at the end, Brandon's gonna get up and give us two or three questions to reflect on with our at-home gatherings or on your own to just journal to process because we don't wanna talk about peace or celebrate peace or worship the Prince of Peace without actually partnering with him to make peace. And so, Father, I love you. I thank you for this incredible time you've given us in human history. You tell us to praise you in all circumstances. And so, God, I give you thanks, even for the contentious moment we find ourselves in because it is a chance for us to live lives that are wonderfully, beautifully countercultural. Help us to live as peacemakers. God, help us to draw near to you proactively to resist the work of the devil in our lives and to trust our lives in your hand as you see fit. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. I love you. Let's worship together, and then we'll end our day by talking.